Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. Many people believe that the passage I'm about to read is rises up like uh, Mount Everest in the Himalayas or the Matterhorn in the Swiss Alps because it tells us Jesus' story, not from the viewpoint of those of us who observe it, its perspective is heavenly rather than earthly, supernatural rather than natural, and divine rather than human, and internal rather than external. And so as we prepare to read God's Word, let's focus our attention this morning on Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, and, and we will read through verse 11. Hear now the Word of the Lord. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray this morning that you will grant to us the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit, that he will empower both the one who speaks and those who hear to um, grasp the truth of what is being preached, the beauty of Christ, his glory, that we may be moved to stand in awe of him and worship him today. And we know that that can only happen when you work. So, Lord, we plead your promises before you, that you will make your presence known and that you will make the gospel good news for us all. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. There are many passages in the Bible which reflect on the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament has numerous prophecies which look forward to Jesus' birth, life, and the occasion of his death and resurrection. The Gospels contain narrative descriptions of what actually happened. Both Matthew and Luke devote two chapters of their Gospel to the meaning of Jesus' birth within the context of his life, death, and resurrection. But the epistles then give us theological insight and commentary on the meaning of Jesus' birth and the meaning of his death, and the meaning of his resurrection. For example, in Romans 8, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 
2 Corinthians 8, 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he, for your sake, became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. In 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Then 1 John 3.8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And then in uh, the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And so today we come to Philippians chapter 2, which I think is one of the best descriptions of the reason Jesus came, why Jesus came, what he came to do, what he came to accomplish, and how that happened. And so we get a window into the mindset of Christ himself, and it tells really a heavenly inside story of what Christmas is. And so Philippians 2 is that passage. First of all, these words have such a rhythmical quality to them because scholars have often wondered if this passage was an early Christian hymn. Now for those who want to sing uh, the Psalter, the Psalms exclusively, you got a little problem here. And your little problem is we got New Testament Psalms that were penned maybe by the Apostle himself or maybe by someone else, and Paul incorporates it into the Philippian text. He actually adds uh, a phrase to uh, the, the six stanzas of this particular song. But notice the overarching pattern in this whole passage. It begins with Christ in glory, and then in the form of God, the passage says, and then descends to its nadir, that is death on a cross, before turning upwards on its ascent to the right hand of the Father. At this point, the reversal takes place. Christ's exaltation, coronation, and worldwide dominion are described in this beautiful passages. These words can be set out in the form of a parabola, and a parabola is like a big dip, like a big loop, and it starts with Christ in glory, and then it begins its descent and his humiliation as he comes a man, and then he's cursed and dies on a cross, and then the resurrection happens, and then he ascends to the right hand of the Father. That is the movement of the passage, and John in his prologue actually does the same thing. But when we talk about this passage, we have to um, understand it uh, the way Paul describes it for us. And he explains in verse 5, which literally reads, Think among you that which you also think in Christ Jesus. That means develop the mindset in your fellowship, your church, 
which is the only consistent mindset for those who are in union with Jesus Christ. But he goes on to explain for us here the humble-mindedness of Christ. Paul is urging us in this passage to live out our fellowship uh, with our humble Savior in very practical ways in our life. When Augustine was asked to list the central principles of the Christian life, he said there are three things. First, humility. Second, humility. Third, humility. That's profound. And this passage gives us a beautiful picture of what humility is. And so Paul points us to the basic framework for Christian living. Over and over again in his letters, he employs a basic formula which he fleshes out in many different ways. We are in Christ, therefore we are to become more like Christ. And the imitation of Christ is not an activity we engage in out of our own resources, but rather depending upon the graces of Christ himself. It isn't so much what would Jesus do, it is so much what Jesus has already done, what he's doing now at the right hand of the Father, and what he will do when he returns. And so the greatness of our Lord's humbling of himself is measured by how low he was prepared to stoop. And from the great heights which were his natural and rightful environment. He was in very nature God, verse 6, or in the form of God. What does in the form of God mean? Well, if you want to get technical on it, it's the Greek word morphe. We get the word metamorphosis from it, to change the form of. But form in this passage is clearly defined for us if you keep reading the next verse. It is clear from the next line that Paul meant this in the sense that Christ possessed equality with God. Saying he was in the form of God is as profound a declaration of the deity of Christ you will find anywhere in the Bible. Now, it is clear that he, the Son, did not grasp or jealously guard his rights as the Son of God. Instead, he was willing to come to our fallen, hostile, rebellious, helpless world for our sake. And he was under absolutely no obligation ever to do so. He could have just as well said, Oh, those creatures that you made in your image, Father, they chose to follow the ways and ideas and temptations of the evil one. They made their own bed. Now let them sleep in it. But that isn't the kind of Savior we have. We have a Savior who, though we righteously deserve to be left, willingly stooped from pre-existent glory. The Gospel of John talks a lot about this. The glory the Son enjoyed in the triune Godhead. Father as God, Son as God, Holy Spirit as God. All in each pouring out themselves and their love to one another in a perichoresis, a dance of glory. But this Son was willing to condescend, to stoop, to leave that glory and enter the worst possible place for a being of his kind to enter in terms of fallenness and rebellion. Jesus was under no obligation to do so, yet he made himself nothing 
He emptied himself. Paul does not mean that he evacuated himself or his deity or the power of his deity. He explains that this word means that Jesus took on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Lord of glory though he was, he emptied himself not by subtraction. He emptied himself not by subtraction of divine attributes, but by the assumption of a human nature. He was Emmanuel, that is, God truly with us, fully God and truly man. Any error in Christology, that is, the doctrine of the person of Christ, any area in the doctrine of Christology leads to a distortion of the gospel and thus it is lost and ends up with nothing more or less than moralism and works righteousness. C.F. Allison years ago who happens to be an Anglican from South Carolina wrote a book called The Cruelty of Heresy. And he says the cruelty of heresy is any time you tamper with the person of Christ by either swallowing up his deity by his humanity or swallowing up his humanity by his deity, you have lost the gospel because it's all dependent upon Jesus being who the scriptures reveal him to be. And so he took... There, there took place a second stage in his amazing humbling as the servant of God. He became obedient to his father, even to the extent of dying on a cross in naked shame as a condemned criminal. Crucifixion was such a horrible death that it was a word not even spoken out loud by the Romans. It was so shameful, it was so offensive, it was so heinous, it was so awful that they wouldn't even say the word aloud. And yet the son humbled himself to the extent of dying on a cross, naked in shame, as a condemned criminal, that any good man should be willing to humble himself in this way for the blessing of others would be breathtaking, no doubt. That the offended one, the Lord of glory, should willingly enter into such humiliation should bring us all and should make us adore him with all of our hearts and leave us in almost stone-dumb worship. I've been meditating on this moment in the passage for this week and it has led me to cry out to the Lord Jesus in worship. What he was willing to do to redeem someone like me is a wonder of wonders. It illuminates the wonder of grace and it means that Jesus often in the scripture is portrayed as Adam in reverse. He is called the last Adam. He is called the second Adam. Notice, being in very nature uh, God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. That reminds us of Adam's failure and his sin in the garden. He was created in the image of likeness of God, but he grasped after equality with God as he heard the, the tempter's words, you shall be as God. By contrast, Jesus whose right equality with God always was, did not refuse to become obedient. 
The Son made himself nothing. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Here we may have an echo of the great prophecy in Isaiah 52 and 53 where the sufferer poured out his life unto death. He is described by God as my servant. He did what Adam refused to do, serve God. The incarnate Son became obedient to death. In Romans 5, 12-21, Paul gives us an exposition of the words by means of an extended comparison between Jesus and Adam. Adam's disobedience brought sin and death into the world, but by contrast, Jesus' obedience brings righteousness and life into the world. The Son of God came to undo the disobedience of Adam, Adam and to the experience the judgment of God which Adam brought crashing down on the human race. To do so, he had to become obedient to his Father's will and plan. This he was throughout the whole of his life from the cradle to the cross. Even when uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Every natural human instinct in him shrank back from the climactic act of obedience on Calvary. He bowed before his Father and prayed, Yet, not my will, but your will be done. So a twofold contrast lies hidden in Paul's description of Jesus' self-humbling. The contrast between who he is by nature and the identity he has taken on by grace and the contrast between what the last Adam became and what the first Adam had been. No wonder such theology produced a song. You know, somebody falls in love, they're the first person ever to do it, so they think, and they write a love song. I mean, every teenager that can play the guitar, sitting in his bedroom, daydreaming about his love, writes a love song, right? Didn't you do that? Am I the only one that did that? <laughs> I know I'm not. But thinking upon Christ, how could this not produce rapture even to the point of song? We've seen in these verses the great principle of Pauline theology. Union with Christ should lead to living like Christ. What Christ-like humility means is not standing on our so-called rights, but being willing to give them up for the sake of others. That's what's so hard in relational conflicts. What makes it so difficult is we know sometimes, I'm not wrong about this. They're the one that's wrong. I have my rights, and I'm not going to let anybody walk over me, and I'm not going to let anybody use me or abuse me or mistreat me. I have my rights. Jesus laid his down. Totally. And it wasn't for good people. He laid it down. What Paul describes here in the language of theology, John's gospel graphically portrays for us where Jesus washes his disciples' feet. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. He got up from the meal, he took off his outer clothing, he wrapped a towel around his waist, and he began to wash his disciples' feet. 
That's the same movement you have in Philippians 2. Who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality God with something to be grasped but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, he humbled himself to death on the cross. Jesus says, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash another's feet. I've got to tell you something. I don't care that much about feet. And I don't care that much about touching anybody's feet. And I don't care about anybody touching my feet but me. But it is a whole lot easier to get a basin of water and some soap and a towel and wash somebody's feet than it is to give up my rights. That's a whole lot easier. But Jesus demonstrated humility, humility, humility. Paul tells us that uh, we're in verse 4 of this chapter that each of us look not only to our own interests but also to the interest of others. Not everything is about us. Although we want it to be about us, but it's not. And the greatness in the kingdom is not by how many people you are over in authority, but rather how many people you're under serving. And that's how Christ defined greatness. And so the Son of God came and he humbled himself and he poured himself out for us. But then the passage has a tremendous reversal. At the nadir, at the bottom of the curve, Paul moves from his description of the humbling of the Son of God, making himself nothing, taking the nature of a servant, becoming obedient to death, to a magnificent description of Jesus' exaltation, of Jesus high and lifted up. We've already noticed the parallel between Paul's description of Philippians 2, that is of our Lord's humble-mindedness, and the account of his humble action in washing his disciples' feet in John 13. But the parallel does not stop there. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. In the upper uh, room, Jesus returned to the head of the table in an acted parable of his exaltation. So in reality, he was welcomed home to the right hand of the Father, God has exalted him to the highest place and has given him a name above every name. The highest place, of course in Scripture, is the place of special honor. But what is the name that is above every name? What is the name that is above every name? Paul goes on to speak about the whole creation bowing before Jesus as Lord. It is usually agreed that this name, that's the name that Paul has in view. But it may be closer to the truth to suggest that Paul is thinking of the meaning of Jesus' name, Savior, combined with the title Lord. For lying behind these verses, we can detect a shadow of Isaiah's prophecy. In chapter 45 of Isaiah, let me read you a few verses. Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God and Savior of Israel. I am the Lord, and there is no other. And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior, but there is none but me. Before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. Paul is saying that Jesus has been publicly exalted to the position 
which was his before the humiliation of the incarnation. In the flesh, through which he identified himself with us, his glory and majesty were normally hidden. Now exalted at the right hand of the Father, his true identity is clear, and his eternal majesty is revealed. God is the only Savior, and Jesus is that Savior. To be the Lord alone, every knee should bow and confess, but Jesus is that Lord. There are a few more impressive things we need to see about Jesus' identity that Paul gives us in this passage. First, he employs an Old Testament passage in which God as speaker gives a description of himself which he applies exclusively to himself. Paul now applies that description to Jesus. He calls Jesus Lord. The Greek word for Lord is kurios. It appears over 6,000 times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament which Paul used. In the vast majority of these references, the word translates the sacred Hebrew divine name Yahweh. Say Kyrios to a Greek-speaking reader of the Old Testament and he would immediately would think of the holy name of the covenant God, Yahweh. Two things about the name of Yahweh. Yahweh is an expression, a Hebrew verb expression of being. And what Yahweh actually says is, I am, I will be, uh, I continue to be, I will always be be. <laughs> I'm, I'm being. But what Yahweh means is I have the power of being in myself and I can cause all things to be. That is, I have aseity. That is, I am self-existent. I am uncreated. I am what I am. I am being. We are, we exist. We have our isness, our existence, out of something else. But only God has the power to cause everything to be. And by calling Jesus Lord, he is saying he has within himself the power to cause all things to be. But it also was a name used with the covenant. I, you shall be my God, or I shall be your God, you shall be my people. And it's the covenant-keeping God, the God who's faithful to his promises, the God who promised in the covenant of grace to come to send a seed that would come and crush the head of the serpent, the seed of the woman. And that's who Jesus is. So wrapped up in curios is both the idea of God's name Yahweh and the power of being and the fact that he's the covenant-keeping God. For Paul to say that Jesus Christ is Lord is not primarily to make a statement about his personal conse consecration, but rather about his Savior divine identity. His Savior's divine identity. Paul says that the exaltation of Jesus to the highest place is to the glory of the Father. In other words, Jesus' exaltation and our recognition of it pleases God. The Lord who brooks no rivals to his divine throne. Think what, think what happened when Adam and Eve thought they could be equal with God. Rejoices in the divine glory of Jesus. Why? 
Paul has already given us an answer. The Lord was in very nature God. Equality with God is his eternal right. We could not ask for a clearer, richer statement of the deity of Christ. If I hear one more time from anyone uh, that Jesus never claimed to be God, that is the ultimate fake news. That is the ultimate. It's everywhere. You have to close your eyes not to see it. And this is the greatest statement of his deity in the New Testament. We could not ask for a clearer, richer statement of the deity of Christ. But there's another penetrating implication of this teaching. If the Father exalts Jesus to the highest place, he will find any lesser honor being accorded to his Son intolerable. Here then is the one way we can recognize those whose hearts are really in tune with God's. What do they make of Jesus? What do they make of Jesus? If we do not desire to see him honored, then we are at odds with the Father. The reality of our faith in his Son is very much in doubt. I don't know where all of you go to church regularly, but I hope you go to a church that makes much about Jesus. That's how you know you're in a church that preaches God's Word, in a church in which the Holy Spirit is acting and involved and engaged and is moving, is because much of may is made of Jesus. It is an interesting sort of sidelight in this passage that Jesus Christ now occupies the position of divine honor and glory in heaven. The Apostle John in the book of Revelation has given us some wonderful word and symbol portraits of Jesus when he describes Christ as the center of the throne of God crowned with glory and honor. That is what heaven is like. And when asked, most of us will say, well, you know, sure, I want to go to heaven. I don't want to go to hell. But do we? What is heaven really like? All the attention, all the praise, all the glory is His, Christ. If we don't want that now, what makes you think you're going to want it then? There's so much rich teaching in this chapter, and we can sometimes ignore the presence of the significant word with which it opens. And that word is therefore. It implies a connection between the humiliation of Jesus and the exaltation by the Father. And whenever we see the word therefore in any passage in Paul's letters, we should stop to work out the logical connections between what has preceded and what ensues or what follows. Here, it's amazing. Number one, the exaltation of Jesus fulfills prophecy. We have noticed that behind Philippians 2 is the suffering servant of Isaiah in chapters 52 and 53. The pro uh, prophecy that began with the promise, See my servant, will be raised up and lifted up and highly exalted. Again, in the messianic prophecy of Psalm 2, the father is heard promising his son, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. The exaltation and worldwide recognition of Jesus follows his humiliation simply because the Father promised it would. But that exaltation is also the right of the Son because he himself is God. 
As the ancient church theologians wisely saw, the Bible teaches that the Son is one with the Father in everything except the properties which distinguish him as Son. He is altogether equal with God, as Paul has indicated in Philippians 2.6. His exaltation is necessary because of his divine identity. And his exaltation is the logical consequence of his humiliation for a third reason. He is the dear son of his father. His father loves him. His father has watched him go to the cross. His father has made him to be sin for us. His father has heard him cry, My God, my God, why am I forsaken? But the father also heard his earlier prayer, Father, glorify your son. Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. The love of the father for his son made his exaltation the inevitable consequence of his humiliation. This is what the father wants for his son. One day that will be more clear when willingly or unwillingly every knee will bow to him and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The question is, has Jesus' humiliation led us to the logical conclusion that our knees should bow to him here and now? But Paul has in mind a particular application of his teaching to the church fellowship. And that's where we move into the last thing I want to say, and that is the mindset we are to have because this passage addresses it clearly. How are we to live out the truth of the mindset of the Son and the mindset of the Father toward the Son, how does that change how I live as a member of the body of Christ? It totally eliminates everything being about me. Humility is not uh, thinking less of yourself. Humility is not trying to uh, demote yourself. Humility is self-forgetfulness. It is forgetting yourself. It is the willingness to move out into others' lives and to serve them and to give of yourself to them. And it is also the willingness to do so knowing not everybody's going to love that. Not everybody's going to want that. Not everybody's going to seek that from you. But humility is a right estimation of who you are. Uh, before God. Humility is not cultivating a poor self-image or an exercise in self-deprecation or groveling or self-flagellation which is really a subtle form of pride. We don't score any sanctity points before God trying to look like we're humble. Calvin defines humility as the mother and root of virtue. Jonathan Edwards said humility is the most essential thing in true religion. In our discipling, we can teach people prayer, Bible study, doctrine, evangelism, community, and the sacraments. But if you bypass cultivating and practicing humility, you might just end up with a modern-day Pharisee. Humility is much more difficult to practice than any of the spiritual disciplines. It's easy to check those off as done, but there are outer, outer, outer uh, disciplines while humility is an inner discipline. 
Humility is the inner disposition of being receptive to grace. It is the polar opposite of pride, which is self-reliant, self-righteous, self-deceived, and self-exalting. And so as we look at our Savior and see the beauty and glory of His humility, as we love Him for that, then He produces that kind of heart in us. How do I know if I'm humbly using my gifts to serve others or rather to impress others? If I don't merely want to be a godly father, a faithful pastor, a loving husband, a good parent, but I want to be the best one, then life is a competition and I have to win. But gospel humility is being overwhelmed by God's holiness, the beauty of Christ, the greatness of His grace, and it leads us to forget self. Forget self. And as we embrace a self-emptying spirit, we need to die daily to our reputation and our ever-present goal of impression management and regard others as better than ourselves. Only the gospel and looking unto Jesus gives us the power to do so. I will tell you that at the heart of every church conflict, at the heart of every relational conflict is pride. It is always pride. It's pride. It's pride. And the only thing that can resolve the pride is somebody has to humble themselves. Somebody has to humble themselves. But the passage in Philippians 2 is worthy of your focus and meditation because it will produce in us what we ourselves could never do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's so much more we could say about this glorious passage. So much more. It's so powerful. And when we think about all that Christ has done and all that he has become, it should make a powerful impact upon our hearts. We know that for us to be proud, we don't have to do anything. We're naturally proud. We're naturally contentious. We're naturally a walking conflict. But we thank you that by looking upon Jesus, seeing his glory, his beauty, there is a way in which the Holy Spirit takes that and transforms us and changes us into people who serve, who give, who lay down our rights. And that is a beautiful thing. Now, fathers, we continue to worship you. May we give as people who are grateful for the unspeakable gift of your Son. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.